Welcome to Itak Dale, a podcast about Poland from Indiana University's Polish Studies Center. I'm Elizabeth Cullen Dunn, your host. My guest today is Professor Jessica Robbins, who's an assistant professor of gerontology and of anthropology at Wayne State University in Detroit. Her new book, Aging Nationally in Contemporary Poland, Memory, Kinship, and Personhood, just came out from Rutgers University Press. Um, Welcome to the podcast, Jessica. Thank you so much for having me, Elizabeth. It's great to be here. I am really excited to talk about this book, which is based on two full years of fieldwork in both Poznan and Wrocław. And maybe you could start by telling us a little bit about the places you did fieldwork, and then we'll talk about what the book has to say about getting older. Sure, I'd love to. So I did my fieldwork, as you said, in the cities of both Wrocław and Poznan. Um, It was important to me when I was figuring out where to do my research in Poland to be in a place where I felt like um, the research was actually feasible, which sounds like kind of an obvious thing to say, but as you're setting about doing the logistics of ethnographic fieldwork and meeting the sort of networks and contacts that you have, I realized that I had kind of the richest set of contacts um, in both Wrocław and Poznan, and so that made these really interesting, really, really feasible places to do the work. And then both Wrocław and Poznan have interesting relationships to the history of the Polish nation, which I can get into a little bit more Mm -hmm. later, but that made sense for kind of the study I was developing. Yeah, Um, and you found yourself in these kind of incredible institutional settings, a bunch of really different ones. Yeah, exactly. So in Wrocław, I did research in um, a rehab institution, a rehabilitation institution that was run by an order of Catholic nuns, the Sisters of St. Elizabeth, mm-hmm. that's designed for people who have um, um, short-term problems that they need rehab from with the idea that they'll recover and go home. And mm-hmm. matter of fact, that doesn't always happen. I also did field work in a state-run home for people with chronic physical disabilities, a domplomotsuspoechnei. Um, neither of these, interestingly, is specifically for older people, but they are mostly populated by older people. In Poznan, I chose an institution for people with, al- with early stage Alzheimer's disease, a day center there. So people would go kind of for respite mm-hmm. care to give their family caregivers a break during the day and go back home. So those were the medical institutions that I did fieldwork in. I also did fieldwork in educational institutions, um, because I was interested in this concept of active aging, which we'll get into. And so the most in, the most kind of visible site of this in Poland is an institution called Universities of the Third Age. So I did fieldwork at Universities of the Third Age in both Wrocław and Poznan. Wow. That, the Universities of the Third Age setting was really great, actually. These, these really, uh, I mean, very active people, mentally and physically active people. And one of the things that you point out in in the book is that these universities of the third age, which are sort of adult learning institutions, um, are really part of a movement to reconceptualize what it means to be old. So, and, and you talk about a third age and a fourth age. So maybe you could talk to us a little bit about how the idea of being old has changed. 
Yeah, that's a great question. Thank you. So as you said, these institutions are called Universities of the Third Age, Uniwersytety Trzeciego Wieku in Polish. This idea of something called the Third Age is, um, it means a time where you, in the life course, when you have finished your productive paid employment in society. And the idea is that you, this happens when people um, are in their 60s. And as people are aging longer and healthier, they then have a period of time before they get, um, before they experience certain forms of debility and can contribute to society in meaningful ways. This concept comes from the British historian, Peter Laslett, who was the first mm -hmm. to use this term, um, the third age. And it comes about in Europe and in North America in the second half of the 20th century as um, as public health improves and people are living longer and able to have this period of time. It's in contrast to the fourth age, which is imagined as a time of decline, decrepitude, and debility, kind of a long, slow slide into the grave um, in which people are seen as dependent and um, reliant on others and not able to contribute to society. These are, of course, um, idealized periods that um, people, any individual does not necessarily move through the stages of life in this Yeah, way. but it, it does point, you know, it's like, um, I remember reading many years ago about the growth of the category teenager, that, hmm. you know, there used to be children and then you were an adult. And all of a sudden there was this long interstitial period called being a teenager. And this didn't emerge until after World War One. And it sounds like we're also in the moment where there's another kind of interstitial or transitional period of life emerging where you're free from some of the responsibilities of caregiving and now have this moment when you can contribute outside of wage labor. And this is a whole nother generational way marker. Right, right, exactly, exactly. So how does the idea that the that people should be quote unquote active or, or you talk about aktivność as a as a whole ideology around aging. Maybe you could tell us a little bit about what it means to be active. <laughs> that is a great question. So this idea, well, first I would say that I think what it is to be active is not exactly the same as what it is to talk about active aging. So maybe I'll first mm -hmm. say what active aging is. Sure. So active aging is this idea um, that you should make old age kind of like what we were talking about with the third age, like this productive, healthy, um, successful part of your life. Because as you are free from wage labor and other kinds of care needs, you have all of this extra time and you can contribute to society and be healthy yourself. And from a kind of population level, this keeps, um, this keeps, uh, the idea is to keep older people from being a drain on the social welfare system by keeping people being uh, active and healthier. So there's the idea of physical health is really key to these kinds of ideas of active aging that are promoted by international organizations like the WHO and the UN and things like this. So there's this kind of proliferation of social programs around the world actually that are trying to get older people to stay or become healthy and socially engaged. Um, what I found in Poland is that, so the translation of active into Polish is aktywne, um, the word aktywne, which seems like it means the main thing, means the same thing. Um, but what I found is that people actually 
there's all these organizations that are promoting something called active aging, but then, and people describe those as participating in active nush, but then there's all these other kinds of organizations that don't really look like the mod, these international models of what active aging is that Polish people also describe as active nosch. And what I came to find, this is kind of like the punchline of the book in a way, is this, this idea of active nosch is really kind of a commitment to life itself and to living in the social world. That uh, is to being connected to others. Um, or you talk about it as being in, in part relational. One of the things that really struck me about this whole discussion about active aging was how many of the women you talked to said that it was the first time they had time to do something yes, for themselves, as opposed to a lifetime of laboring for others. So maybe you can tell me a little bit about how can this be both a kind of active and also that is kind of egocentric or self-facing activity, but also being about being connected to the world. Right. That's a really um, interesting set of things to put together. Yeah. So that was one of the main findings that I found. One of the things that first jumped out to me during the fieldwork was that people would talk about like participating in these activities in which they would learn foreign languages, for instance, or join a choir or go to a series of psychology lectures. And they were doing this for oneself. They described this in contrast to previous aspects, previous times in their life in which their social relations were not chosen by them. They felt kind of forced into a network of social connections, social relations based on people they worked with, based on people in their apartment building, um, based on, um, you know, activities their kids would participate in, that they had to be friendly to people in order to, um, in order to maintain some set of um, relations that they, like, they felt that there was a sense that people needed something from their social relations, that they needed to get something from, um, from their coworkers, from their neighbors, or that they might be expected um, to provide something for their neighbors or coworkers or other kinds of relations. So there's this real sense of kind of obligation. The obligation in previous life relationships was really strong. And people contrasted this to the friendships that they made um, at the University of the Third Age that were based on this kind of idea of just because I want to do it, I can do it. Just because I like someone, I'm going to talk to them. So it was a, there, it's, it's a, people were definitely making connections that were very, social relations that were very meaningful to them, but kind of the origin of the, and the genesis for those relations they saw as coming from within themselves, this kind of ideal of a, like a pure friendship. So in some way, it's also about the third, the third age is a time when your relationships to other people don't have to be instrumental anymore. Exactly. You know, you can yeah. like someone to like them. You can do something for the pleasure of doing it rather than to achieve another goal, like earning a wage or raising your kids or right. so, so in some sense, it sounds like that La Shebia, um, feeling for them was about not having to achieve outside goals with what they were doing. Yeah, I think that's right. I think that's de right. De-instrumentalizing. Right, people. right. De certainly de-instrumentalizing. Yep. Yeah. De-instrumentalization. De de how, do you, how do you think, you know, 
what it means to be old in Poland sounds like it's changed dramatically in the last 30 years since the end of the socialist period. How do you think it's changed? What are the biggest changes since the great transformation? I think, I think maybe to answer that in terms of the perspective of some of my research participants, certainly for the, the people who participated in the universities of the third age, they would say that they now have the possibility exactly for these kinds of activities to do something um, to travel, to go abroad. Um, I was doing my field work during, in the years, the, the longest time period was 2008 to 2010. So Poland had only recently, pretty recently joined the EU in the Schengen um, free travel zone. So just the fact multiple people told me, you know, I can get on, I can take my Polish passport and I can get on a train and go all the way to Italy. I can go to Bulgaria. I don't have to show my passport anywhere. I can just travel. I, it's this idea, the kind of concept of free travel was really important for people in later life. Um, and so there's a way in which kind of ideals of aging take on the meaning of the transition from socialism to capitalism um, that occurred in 89. I think in terms of actual experiences of aging, I think it's hugely variable, of course, depending on um, people's health status, kinship networks, um, you know, with a lot of migration that has happened since Poland joined the EU. Many of my research participants had younger relatives, children, et cetera, that moved abroad, Germany, the UK, um, Norway, the US, Canada in some cases. Um, so this fact of having um, of kin abroad and kind of um, um, feeling some people felt kind of abandoned by that movement, movement abroad in some ways is, is a shift. Yeah, uh, you talk about it as a spatiotemporal rupture, that, that, it's, that it's in many ways to have your family disperse across space is massively disruptive to your personhood. Right, right, exactly. Because for many older Poles that I spoke with, um, what it is to be a good, what it is to live a good life and to grow old well and to be a person, to see oneself as a respected person and to feel that respect from others um, is tightly connected to an idea of the Polish nation, which is the physical space of Poland itself matters. Yeah, I, I, was, I was really struck by that sort of paradox that on the one hand, what people valued was the freedom to leave Poland, to go beyond Poland. And, and on the other hand, the fact that their kin were going beyond Poland um, was a threat not only to themselves, but to their idea of, of Poland itself, of Polishness. So, yeah. so how, how do you think that they connected to the idea of Poland as a nation? And why do you think that was so important to what it means to be old? Right. That's a great question. So I think, I think there's many, I think there's many levels um, on which this idea of the Polish nation is working and then what, how that um, affects people's experiences and ideas of old age. So I think for older Polish people who live in Wrocław and Poznan, and as Wrocław in particular, actually, because of the, um, the history of Poland, such that the oldest generations in, Pol in Wrocław right now were not born there. 
Um, they all moved there from elsewhere. Um, many of my research participants in Wrocław came from, or their families came from the Krasy, the eastern borderlands um, of what's now um, Ukraine, Belarus, Lithuania, um, and had this sense of kind of lost, a lost homeland mm-hmm. after the after the borders of Poland moved to the West after World War II. Um, and so this idea of the, of the lost Polish nation, the lost territory, and kind of um, the feeling a need to transmit an understanding of that to the next generation was really important to people. Um, I think um, there's also a, um, a broader sense in which the national narrative of the suffering Polish nation um, has a really strong hold on people. Um, in, in, for some people, it is um, related to the contemporary political situation in Poland in which the ruling party, law, the Law and Justice Party, really mobilizes this narrative of the mythical, long-suffering Polish nation um, as a... Um, as a ideal form that shapes belonging in the present and is the kind of moral framework of what it is to live a good life. Um, I think there's other ways in which that are less connected to that political framework. So even among people who don't support peace, for instance, the idea of the historically suffering Polish nation is really important and kind of frames their sense of what it is to be a person in the world. So it's, um, I think that there is a sense in which um, being connected, finding ways to make meaningful connections to that concept, which can often occur through the place of residence and through the place of Poland itself, um, are are, um, important for structuring people's sense of of a world order, really. Yeah, I, I, I think you, know, you get this sense that these are people who have lived through these dramatic transformations in the world order. And this national myth of Poland mm-hmm. as the Christ of nations is something to kind of hang on. It's this stable right. framework in the midst of tremendous social and economic and cultural change. Do you think Absolutely. that there's some connection between, you know, a lot of the people that you were talking with were going through physical suffering. And this is particularly true of the people in the rehab facility. Yes. Um, And so they were in pain themselves. Do you think there's some connection between their, or they feel some connection between their own suffering and the suffering of the nation? Sometimes yes. And sometimes no. No. (laughs) (laughs) I would say, um, I would say that, um, Yes, sometimes people explicitly may, would make that connection, like they would talk in one minute about their own physical bodily pain. Um, for instance, one woman who talked about um, the difficulty of that day's physical therapy session, not being able to move her arm after recovering from a stroke, and then the next minute would talk about the, would go into a series of laments about the terrible state of farmers um, and today in contemporary Poland and the suffering that Poland has been through. Um, another woman in the rehab center would talk about, um, you know, the the suffering of the Polish nation across centuries, um, talk, talking about 
um, the contemporary suffering of what she saw as um, um, her son having to go abroad for work, of her of Poland sending troops to Iraq, for instance, um, but Poland still being in a sad state itself, and she would connect like go from go from that conversation to talking about again like the difficulty of the particular rehabilitation that she was experiencing back and forth, back and forth. So I think there is some, I think there is some connection in some way that 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 broader spatiotemporal framework provides a way to make sense and for people to understand um, their individually experienced pain. However, and I think that the Catholic dimensions of that. Uh, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I think of Pope John Paul II and, and putting his own exactly. physical suffering on display exactly. because for him, he wanted to show that suffering was meaningful. Yes. And um, that human life has value in all its stages. Yeah. Uh, and, but, but that the particular act of experiencing pain and suffering was itself a meaningful action, not, not yes. senseless or something that, that was to be avoided if at all possible, um, or something that made a person unvaluable, that the suffering person was, was also a valuable person. Yes. One of the, one of the figures that, um, I have been curious about for a long time and that you bring up a lot is the infamous mohair berets. So um, these are old, you know, stereotypically dumpy middle-aged or older women in their multicolored mohair berets. And the idea is that these women are this conservative cultural force that um, is, is supporting peace is supporting the law and justice party. And that, if the progressive left doesn't act against them, the mohair, the mohair berets will, will sort of take over with their cultural stodginess or cultural backlash. Um, do you think that, that women of that age themselves conceived of them, themselves as, as mohair berets, as cultural icons and cultural forces? Um, some yes and some no, to <laughs> repeat myself, that's always the answer. Sometimes yes, sometimes no. Um, for some people who very strongly identify with the politics of peace and with, for instance, Radio Maria, I think the answer is a definitive yes. So there's one example, a person at the, I actually don't write about her that much in the book because I've written about her elsewhere, um, but there's a there was one woman who was a patient at the rehab center. She was a permanent patient there. Actually, they had a few beds set aside for people to live there permanently. She had multiple sclerosis and um, uh, the course of her illness was such that um, she required full-time care. Um, She listened to Radio Maria all the time. Um, It was constantly on. She gave me a gift actually one time when I was there. She was one of the people who kind of was most able to create relationships at this rehab center, which people often experienced as um, quite lonely. She had, she had family nearby. They always brought her, she had a supply of like instant coffee and treats and cookies and little trinkets all the time. And she was always giving, always making me coffee, which was quite a feat given, um, given her physical ability. Um, She was always giving gifts away to people. Um, And she gave me a gift one time that her sister um, had gotten at a pilgrimage. This was this was probably in two thousand eight or nine. Um, of supporters of of um, Cardinal Ridzik, 
um, who who's the leader of Radio Maria, um, this a far right conservative nationalist Catholic uh, media empire, really. Um, Televisia Trvam, I Persist is another one of these venues. Um, and the image, the gift that she gave me was a small knit pin of a mohair beret. And um, it, people. Oh, that's it, classic. That's absolutely classic. A knit pin of a mohair beret. Yes, because the attendees of the pilgrimage felt very strongly that they were mohair berets and they were reclaiming the term uh, that they felt was used against them. And so they were taking it on as a term of pride, which is fascinating. You know, that's happened with other kinds of terms like queer, for instance. Um, so, but the far, so the far right older women were saying, yes, we are in the Mohair Berets. We will wear this proudly. It had a piece of paper inside that said, um, Bog Onar Echizne. Um, which is the slogan of, of, the, of peace. Right. Yeah. So, um, so yes, some people very much see themselves as mohair berets. Mohair berets. Yes. Yeah, it's interesting yeah. that they've reclaimed what was a slur as, right. as a kind of point of pride. And, right. and do they... So, that was not so widespread, though, I have to say. That was not... That, was, that is one example out of 100 people that I spoke with, so... So many um, populist movements around the world, I mean, this is now a global phenomenon, many populist movements around the world... Um, put put themselves in a narrative of increasing degeneracy right of the moral degeneracy of the nation the yeah. moral degeneracy of the european union um and and they they talk about stopping decline or stopping mm -hmm. corruption um and decrepitude do you yeah. think that people um made some link between this narrative of stopping the degeneration of the nation and stopping their own degeneration by being more active? Is, act is being active somehow a solution to the corruption and degeneracy of the nation? That is a fascinating question. The people who were most excited about the explicit Dege moral degeneration of the nation narratives that kind of most um, that re recapitulated peace talking points in very um, recognizable, legible ways where you could say, oh, I know exactly like the source for this kind of story. It's exactly what you hear on the news. Um, we're not the people who are most involved in active aging stuff. Not that they're entirely separate, but I would say the people who are most excited about active aging and the people who are most excited about um, narratives of moral decline of the nation were uh, distinct groups. There is some overlap um, in, the, in the sense that, you know, there are plenty of people who support peace who participate in the universities of the third age, for instance. It's not like those were all a bastion of support for a civic platform. Um, I think, I think that the, um, so I guess that's to say that the people who most actively support peace are not engaging in that individual activities that they see are not making that link. But I yeah, do yeah. think there's a way in which the, um, 
in which the in which the narratives of decline of the nation and the decline of old age kind of track each other. And so I think there's maybe an implicit, like not articulated way in which trying to repair or trying to, trying to repair the nation or trying to, um, trying to create a future that um, that has a, a strong sense of purpose and meaning can be done through active uh, practices of active nosh. You know, talking about building a sense of self that, uh, of building a sense of yourself as a person whose life has purpose and meaning. Um, you have this chapter that's absolutely heart-wrenching in a lot of ways, which is set in, a, in the care facility for Alzheimer's patients. Mm. And, you know, you talk about um, the challenges that they face in building a sense of themselves, even as their memories are sliding away from them, mm-hmm. um, and particularly their ability to, to form new memories. So can you tell us a little bit about how people experience themselves as aging when their primary symptom is the decline of memory? Right. Um, thanks for asking about that. I'm happy to have a chance to talk about that material. I, I thought I was going to cry in this chapter, actually. <laughs> I just thought it was, it was, there was something that really hit me about the struggle of these people to continue con- constantly rebuilding themselves as they remember less and less. Yeah. Um, what I really noticed from my work at the, at the Alzheimer's Center, and I should say too, this is a center for people with early to middle stages of Alzheimer's. So everyone there um, is, um, is verbal to some extent. Um, has verbal capacity to some extent and can participate in in social in social interactions with and, and they know what's family. happening to them right to more or less extent yeah um, um, so what I found there is that people that the role of the kind of the collective and the inter and particularly the national collective and the interactions at the center itself were really important for people's continuing sense of personhood. So, and I think the the interactions with other participants at the center as well as the staff there um, were in contrast to kin relations. So there's some way in which actually, um, you know, memory loss makes interactions with relative strangers easier than with your kin. Because if you cannot remember your son's name, you, and you, but you know it's your son, and you can't remember your son's name, that's a terrible feeling. That's a terrible feeling. And if you know that you can, but if you forget the name of you know, a rehabilitation therapist who's at the center who you see a couple times a week, the stakes are not quite as high. So there's some way in which the lower stakes interaction um, facilitated a kind of pleasant sociality um, and kind of a pleasant mood at the center that was in contrast to how, um, contrast to the glimpses that I saw of relationships with kin as people dropped, as their spouses or children dropped them off and picked them up at the beginnings of in each day. And I also did some interviews with partners of um, 
of people at the Alzheimer's Center and who reported like wildly different behavior at home than was observable at the center. Yeah, I, I love this scene where none of them can remember who the current prime minister is, but they're all making jokes about politics of the 1950s. Totally. Yes. It was and, and laughing hilariously. Every single one of them understood yeah. that joke about the 1950s. But if you had asked them about anything happening last week, there was nothing. Right. Well, it's even more than that, too. Like the Because the therapists would do these... Um, kind of cognitive exercises to encourage people's, um, to encourage and promote um, memory among people with Alzheimer's and recall of certain facts. So she would ask things like, who's the current prime minister? And no one could answer. So the whole point though was to recall like current, to name stuff that was happening now. And people like started, someone called out Bjerut, the Stalinist leader of the fifties that everyone busted out laughing because, they knew that was wrong. So it's not that they were actually like talking about Beirut, but they were some, they were in the present and knew that Beirut was wrong, really wrong. But that was what they could remember. But that's what they could remember. Um, and so could that, that sense of kind of a shared forgetting of the present um, brought, brought people together in that moment. So what do you think the, the key elements for, for the people at the Alzheimer's Center were in building a sense of themselves as, you know, as you said, persons worthy of respect. What, how did they go about that process? Um, I think it has to do with repeated, um, what I call kind of small scale cyclical kinds of encounters. Like people went to the center, went to the center to, most people went two or three times a week. Some people went every day, Monday through Friday. And so there's a sense of familiarity that's created, even if it's, um, even if people can't articulate it or they get lost and try to, try to leave. The doors were locked from the inside and out so people couldn't leave during the day um, unless they were supposed to be leaving. Um, so there's some sense of familiarity and known um, like known interactions within a, a place that that is made to feel good to them. And then what feels good to people is done through this um, recreation in some ways of elements of a, uh, or not recreation, but kind of engagement with elements of a shared past. So there is one guy there who would sing all the time. He would sing these Hartzerskia songs um, over and over again, and he would forget the lyrics and so he would sing like one verse over and over and the staff were like, oh my gosh, here we go again. Um, but did anybody uh, else know the rest of the lyrics to the scouting songs? People would either sing along, sing with him and then just keep going, like keep repeating the same one. People would clap along, people would join in. So there is a kind of generational, I mean, not everyone is exactly the same age. They, people ranged probably in the 60s to 90s when they were there although most people were in their 70s and 80s. Um, so there's kind of a generational sense of a shared past that people can connect with. And it's really these forms of, um, forms of engagement with others that I saw actually across all the different places, the rehab center, the state-run welfare home, the universities of the third age, um, the allotment gardens. Um, so I also did some field work in places where that were not, neither 
should have said this at the beginning, that people that uh, some places that were neither medical or educational institutions, but rather kind of sites of quote unquote normal aging, since um, most older poles do not participate in either um, in either of these medical or ed educational institutions. So also senior clubs, parish clubs, things like that. Um, people, people engage, people sing the same songs, people pour you the same cup of tea, the same cup of coffee, this offer you the same sets of cookies, um, tell similar stories of the suffering Polish nation, um, or the nation comes to matter in some way, as it did at the Alzheimer's Center. Um, and that those kinds of practices are really what um, I think are possible even, even quote unquote, even for people with dementia, for whom we so think, so often tend to think that personhood is not possible. And yet they're participating in this performance of, of generation. You know, they're, they're, they're part of the same group doing the same things yeah. um, in an almost ritualistic kind of way. Yeah. And I was, as I was reading this, I thought, you know, I'll be singing those I'll be 90 years old singing those after school songs that we watched on TV, you know, like Inner Planet Janet or Conjunction Junction, right? The yeah, songs yeah. of my generation. <laughs> and and I, I thought in a way how heartwarming it is that you're part not only of a national group, but you're very much part of a cohort. And people, even in the loss of memory, felt themselves to be part of a cohort. Yeah, I think that's I think that's true. You know, I know that a lot of your new work has um, been looking at aging in America, and how how different or how similar did you find aging in Poland to aging in America? Ah, uh, that is a question I get a lot. I bet it is. <laughs> um, I the I would say that um, there are. The, the main finding of my work in Poland, you know, is about the significance of this pol of the Polish nation in terms mm -hmm. of people making sense of their lives and maintaining or creating a sense of personhood in later life. And I did not, I have not found that so much in my work in the US, the, the US nation, the American nation does not figure in the same way for people at least in the work that I've done. I should also Interesting. Say even, even in the rise, at, at a moment of sort of rising populism, you would think that, that aging Americans who are, you know, by, by and large um, supporters of the Republican Party in America, um, or the Republican Party is disproportionately old. Yeah. Um, and, and so you would think there would be that link, but you're not finding it. Correct. I should also maybe say a little bit more about the work I've done in the U.S. Mm -hmm. then, which is um, smaller in scale, the projects I've done in the, than the long-term fieldwork in Poland, which was, you know, about two full years and included a much kind of wider swath of the population in some ways. In the U.S., um, I've done a project on gardening and well-being among older African-Americans in Detroit, and also a project on the Flint water crisis, how older adults were handling the Flint water crisis. Um, so I think I would say that among older African-Americans in Detroit and older people in Flint, that is not that is not the base of the Republican Party right there. <laughs> and that is true. They are not, those, those are not two groups that generally vote Republican. And there has been this historic link in the United States between Republicans and, um, and nationalist imagery. So right. you can see the disconnection there. Would you, right. would you, um, 
But what, what do you see as the difference in the way they make themselves into persons? Yeah. So what I would say about the points of connection that I find are that um, there are um, that the, I guess a couple things. One, the role of the role of memory and kinship um, in terms of creating personhood kind of matters in different, different ways, but in both places. So for instance, among um, older Black Americans in Detroit who garden, gar what I found there is that gardening is really memory work. It's kinship work. If you ask people about their plants and about gardening, how they learn to garden, you'll get stories of kinship and of ancestors and how people learned to garden from their grandparents. You will learn about a specific plant that was given to someone by their dis now deceased friend, and they call that friend their Miss Katie plant, for instance. So there's a way in which the plants actually store the relations, um, and that this is this is an essential part of people's understanding of what it is to live with dignity and respect in old age is to be able to have meaningful ways to connect to, to the past and to past kinship relations in particular. Um, from the work in Flint, I guess I would say, what's really so interesting to me about doing the work in both Poland and the US is that the, you know, Detroit and Flint, Michigan are both post-industrial spaces. Um, Poland, contemporary Poland is generally post-industrialist space. And so thinking about like the, that have all, there's also interesting parallels to be made at the level of the, of the life histories of the older adults in both places. So in Poland, as we were saying before, you know, the oldest generations have lived through these massive socio-political, economic, cultural transformations. The oldest people in my study there were born in before World War I, actually. There are a couple of people I spoke with who were born in 1910. Um, so that's just during the partition era. So that's a like incredibly huge swath of history to live through in the course of one lifetime. Both world wars, the recreation of the interwar Polish state, the, um, the imposition of Soviet socialism after the war, the collapse of that system in 89, joining the EU, like that's all in one lifetime. In the US, um, older adults, in Detroit and Flint have lived through kind of the growth of these cities, the role of the auto industry and in shaping them into booming cities, the kind of collapse of that, of that industry, the massive economic transformations that that has brought. Um, these and the, these don't that, sound so different. Right. <laughs> the, the sense of massive political economic transformation in the course of one lifetime and then how you make sense of what it is to age in that context um, is really a point of connection that's really productive to think with across these spaces. Yeah, uh, I mean, here we are, uh, two groups of people in totally different countries participating in a really a global change, which is, you know, the digital revolution and the decline mm. of the manufacturing era. Yeah. And, and when we think about um, I mean, it's easy to think about, about Poland and the United States as sort of radically different, but in many ways they're participating in that same process. And we're living yeah. our lives in the context of these big um, historical shifts. And I, that's yeah. what I found really fascinating about your book was the notion of, of us as, as living our lives embedded in history and of history being important to our own sense of self. And I, yeah. I started thinking about that in my own life, you know, to what extent is my own 
history also a, a story of historical change. Did yeah. you start to think about your own life in the context of the histories you grew up in? I do very much so. I mean, in some ways, you know, the my interests, like the, I feel myself to be a product of the late Cold War era, right? Growing up as a kid in, in the Reagan era 80s and thinking of the U.S., as the kind of like dominant world force and thinking about how that shaped my sense of what was possible for my own life (laughs) such that I thought, sure, I'll learn Polish and go to Poland and be an anthropologist. Of course I can do that. Sure. Sure. There were, that was certainly not, we had no sense of limits. Maybe I think I'm a little older than you. And I had a sense when I first went to Poland of being kind of a pioneer. Mm. I remember I went to Poland first in 90 and I was behind the iron curtain. Yeah. And that was still really, really shocking for, for a non-Polish, non-European person to do was kind yeah. of crazy. Yeah, totally. totally. Yeah. And, and, but, but I really appreciate, appreciated the way you sort of made me rethink aging. Has, has this work changed the way you want to age yourself? Has it given you principles that you'll use to create a good old age for yourself? Oh boy. <laughs> That's a big one. I don't know. You know, I think being an anthropologist of aging has, like being an anthropologist of so many things. <laughs> this, I think this, in other words, I think this is true for people, for anthropologists who study all kinds of different fields, is that we get really good at deconstructing um, the our object of study and showing how it, the processes through which it's made and shaped and can be reshaped and transformed and the power of the cultural narratives that we live within and find ourselves caught within. I think, so I have, that all gives me a great appreciation for the power of contingency in our own lives and um, kind of the inability to, um, to, I feel like the inability to prejudge what a good old age means ahead of time. Um, I think what the research that I've done as well as the research of many of my colleagues who work on aging is a profound respect for the power of human interdependence and the need for interdependence and the desire Um, to combat myths of independence in old age, which are such a key part of our cultural narrative. Oh, yeah. And and we insist that old people stay independent as long as possible, that they're in independent living. And we put them in very isolating circumstances. You know, you need to move away from the people and the places that you've known all your life and go into a home where you're in a room by yourself or in an apartment by yourself. And And I was really struck by how the context of many of the places you were in Poland was very different, that people were not meant to be self-isolating in the same way that um, the American system has people aging. Yes. So I think that is another difference, actually. The cultural, I wouldn't say the... um, that there's, I wouldn't want to say it so strongly as there's no desire for an independent personhood in Poland or something like that in old age, because people very much felt like they didn't want to be a burden on their kids um, as they got older and needed more physical care, for instance. Like people actually, even though there's a, a negative stereotype about residential care, nursing home type facilities in Poland, people also really recognize the need for them 
because they don't want to be a burden. Um, however, that's not nearly as strong as it is in the US, where this kind of maintaining this fiction of independent personhood is, is like the, the main goal of old age, which is really a denial of old age. Um, and, 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 a a, and a denial of the, of the contacts and connections that we make to our families and to the people around us and, and to political systems. And, and, and I, I thought the book just did a wonderful job of showing how important it is to stay embedded as we get older. Yeah. Thank you for that. I'm glad that came across. <laughs> well, it's a wonderful book. Thank you so much for coming to talk to us. And, um, you know, we really look forward to hearing more uh, from you about how to make a good old age. Thank you so much for the opportunity to participate in this conversation. It's been a delight. Mm -hmm.